this is Chelsea Higgs Wise. And I decided to start a show about being the biracial girl who was living her life, being half and half, never picking a side until one day the world informed me, girl, you're black. I'm from the Chelsea Higgs Wise, and you're listening to Race Capital on WRIR. This episode describes stories, information, and experiences of sexual assault and/or violence, which may be triggering for some survivors. We want to encourage any listener to tap out for your mental health, and we'll catch you next week on Race Capital. Richmond, we have a problem. We don't believe black women. Black History Month has not only been overshadowed by Ralph Northam, Mark Herring's blackface, but also the allegation brought forth against Lieutenant Governor Justin Fairfax. The people bringing those allegations up have names. In this situation, as in any situation, the focus is put on the perpetrator, and the narratives of the survivors become an extension of the perpetrators. And it's time we talk about them. It's time to look in the mirror at how we respond to them. This episode will give space for Black women whose voices have been drowned out by the men at the Capitol. We'll also talk with Valerie Slater of Rise for Youth and discuss what our Black girls are experiencing here in Virginia's juvenile justice system. And we'll interrogate how not listening to Black girls creates a pathway to the school-to-prison pipeline. Today we ask, how do we learn to believe Black women? There are two women who have come forth with allegations of sexual assault against Lieutenant Governor Justin Fairfax, Meredith Watson and Dr. Vanessa Tyson. Meredith Watson says her assault happened in 2000 while she was a student at Duke University. She penned an op-ed in the Washington Post stating that she's willing to testify in public and that Justin Fairfax should also be willing to testify. She writes... I told my story, and in a single week, my life was probed, exposed, examined, and picked over. This is what women who come forth know to expect and to fear. Few rape victims do come forward. The rapists shake free what soon become just a slight taint, and they move on. Women of color who report rape know to expect a dismissive response characterized by even greater disbelief and more abuse, if not complete and utter indifference. She goes on to say... Despite every attempt to shame me, I am not ashamed. It is Justin Fairfax who should be ashamed. It is the Virginia legislature that should be ashamed. It is the media that should be ashamed. If we as a society continue to allow women who report rape to be abused, disparaged, and tormented a second time, then shame on us all. We honor both of these women for using their voices in the face of society that doesn't believe them, that doesn't believe us, and that doesn't believe black women. The first woman to publicly come forward with allegations of sexual assault against Lieutenant Governor Justin Fairfax was Dr. Vanessa Tyson, a professor of politics at Scripps College. Both of these women have been presented by the media as characters in a perpetrator's narrative, but there's more to them than just mentions in an article. These women have stories that we need to listen to. In this episode, we offer you an account personally confirmed by Dr. Tyson. We recognize her. We see her. We believe her. Allow me to introduce you to Dr. Vanessa Tyson, a social scientist by training who currently teaches in the Department of Politics at Scripps College in Claremont, California. Her courses include Black Americans and the Political System, Women in Public Policy, Introduction to Public Policy, Research Design, and Environmental Policy in the U.S. 
Dr. Tyson's first book, Twist of Fate, Multiracial Coalitions and Minority Representation in the U.S. House of Representatives, explores structural inequality in the United States and how members of Congress have formed multiracial coalitions as a strategy to provide for their diverse constituencies. As an expert on U.S. Congress policy formation, race, gender, and social justice, Dr. Tyson has an extensive background in both U.S. and California politics. Having worked on political campaigns since she was a teenager, including three presidential campaigns, two U.S. Senate campaigns, and numerous state and local campaigns, she carefully considers how political dynamics affect policy formation and consequent outcomes. Tyson has been featured in U.S. News and World Report, The Sacramento Bee, NPR, Huffington Post, and The Brian Callen Show. Dr. Tyson spent two years working as an advocate for sexual violence awareness and prevention, serving as one of the founding members of the Boston Area Rape Crisis Center Survivor Speakers Bureau and starting a self-esteem self-awareness program for female juvenile offenders through the Department of Youth Services in the state of Massachusetts. Dr. Tyson has a bachelor's degree from Princeton University in politics, coupled with a certificate in African American Studies and an MA and PhD from the University of Chicago in political science. She has won numerous awards for teaching excellence. And then February 4th happened. The Big League Politics article came out, and because of how our friends RVA Dirt is positioned, they shared this article. Within the article was a screenshot of a message that Vanessa wrote to her friend, Adria Scharf. And it reads, Imagine you were sexually assaulted during the DNC convention in Boston in 2004 by a campaign staffer. You spend the next 13 years trying to forget it ever happened, until one day you find out he's a Democratic candidate for statewide office in a state some 3,000 miles away, and he wins that election in November 2017. Then by strange, horrible luck, it seems increasingly likely that he'll get a very big promotion. Adria, her friend, then says, This is Vanessa Tyson's private post. She gave permission to share this screenshot of her post. She's a professor at Scripps College now. Heartbreaking. From here, the We Don't Trust Women campaign begins. People came for Vanessa's history. They came for Adria and her husband, who used to work for our current mayor, LeVar Stoney. They came for the RVA Dirt women. But it wasn't long before Vanessa came to the RVA Dirt's page and confirmed the message was typed by her. She also confirmed Adria Scharf being her longtime friend and having permission to share the text. From there, Vanessa deleted her Facebook and the world proceeded to copy and paste her name. Or did they? Did the media say her name? Or did they just paint her entire being with labels such as accuser or victim in comparison to the very boisterous lieutenant governor who made his thoughts known and his, by his actions and by the reports of those around him? We watched as the black-led organizations we look up to crumble with dissent from within, as folks that care and are close to Justin become paralyzed with how to model our next move. Virginia is watching. The world is watching. How do we act when it's the women that have mentored us and demonstrated steps to organizing that are also the ones that come in with the duct tape ready to close our lips of anyone that mumbles Justin's name, telling us young organizers, we aren't bringing up Justin. We must focus on Ralph. This has been the momentum of a lot of the energy here in the political world. We just wrapped up Black History Month. We must look at the events popping up around blackface in the city of Richmond. But what about the ones on surviving sexual assault? Where are the forums on believing women in politics, on believing black women in politics that report sexual assaults within the ecosystem of politics? Imagine that. If women believe that their story of being groped by an old former council person would be believed and not shrugged off by the politicos of the space. We all have a Me Too moment with, inner male politician's name here, 
That's what I've heard even as of two days ago. So in an era where this anti-racism facilitator is being hit up daily to discuss blackface, I have yet to get an email about discussing black women managing the Fairfax story, managing our stories. There is yet to be any shift in energy of believing women or knowing what the hell to do in a situation where you're a black voter, but also a woman voter. How do we handle this? How do we talk about this? I guess we just have to have that conversation ourselves. And up next, we are welcoming Executive Director of Rise for Youth, Miss Valerie Slater. Hey. Hey, Valerie. <laughs> How you doing? I'm great. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Okay, so you all are doing some amazing things at Rise for Youth. I can't believe anyone that has not heard of you. You guys are everywhere with the art, the activism, the policy, just a lot of amazing things. Congratulations with Thank everything. You Thank you. Yeah, so why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about Rise for Youth? Okay, well, Rise stands for Reinvest in Supportive Environments, and we are all about closing juvenile prisons and reinvesting the savings from those closures into alternatives in communities and impacted communities at that. We want to make sure that the folks from those communities are receiving the help and support that they need so that their families can be stronger, so that public safety goes up, and that young people, they are having the opportunity to live positive and thriving lives. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Okay, so tell me exactly, you said you're trying to, you all focus on closing prisons and then using that, the money that would go into investing in prisons into investing in youth. That's exactly right. That's amazing. Yeah, I mean, there are so many things that that young people need and desire in their lives. And it's oftentimes young people who don't have opportunity, they find themselves looking for means outside of what we consider the traditional or the approved way to go about grabbing those things that they want, right? Right. So is there an example here in Virginia about when you guys have closed an institution down and what that looked like and what came from that? So Rise for Youth, we were very instrumental in the closure of the largest youth prison in Virginia, Beaumont Juvenile Correctional Center. Oh, yeah. We know about Beaumont. We're so excited about the closure of that facility. But we were That's... also instrumental in the capturing of the $40 million savings that was generated from that closure. $40 million? $40 million. Wow. Yeah. And then making sure that those monies were set aside to build out alternatives to incarceration. And while we are so excited that two regional service coordinators were contracted with so that they could begin to find the folks who could do the good work in community, mm -hmm. we are very interested in making sure that you are going to communities first and allowing those providers who have been there right. and supporting the young people from those communities, you make sure that they are getting some of that money to build their capacity to serve their own communities. Wow. So how are you all doing this? It sounds like the activism side to close it down, but then also the buildup of the equity investment. What are some of the strategies that you all use to really tap into those? So first of all, when they contracted with these two regional service coordinators and we went to community and asked them how much they knew about this new opportunity, nine out of 10 providers had never heard about that $40 million that all of a sudden became available. Okay. So when you say providers, tell the listeners who was a provider, what would they do? A provider, someone who has a mentoring program, someone who's got an after-school program, some, yes. someone who's got a barbershop where they bring young people in and allow them to either sweep up 
up the hair or they're just kind of, you know, hanging out and getting good support and, and leading them down the right path and keeping them off of the streets. Those are the folks that need the, the, the finances and the resources to build their business so that they can continue to do that amazing work on larger scale so that they can begin tracking the positive results. Because every time a young person chooses to go to school rather than hang out on a corner, that's a positive result. Every time one of those kids graduates from school and goes on to get a job, goes on to, to, to college or whatever they may choose to do, those are positive results that aren't being measured. And so all of a sudden we've got uh, systems folks saying, well, you know, you don't have that evidence-based component. And and ignoring the fact that these are young people who are doing amazing things and are staying out of trouble. Right. And so we make sure that those are the folks, those are the providers, the ones doing that on the ground in community work. They know about the funds. They know how to begin to collect their data so that they can uh, truly be evidence-informed. Right. And so they can contract with these regional services service coordinators. And then we check back to make sure. So were you contacted by the regional service coordinator? Did they come and do their site visit? Right. Did they contract with you? If they've contracted you, are they now sending you young people? Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, wow. and, yeah, helping them to understand that there were two models, the model that said one child at a time versus we'll give you a lump sum of money. Mm-hmm. And, you know, then you can serve so you many. do your thing. Oh, my gosh, you do you. <laughs> right. You do what you've always been doing. Exactly right. And with your community, with the resources, that are there, the expert of the area, the space. That's exactly right. The population, that's dope. It sounds like you all are creating a pipeline as an alternative, a, a positive pipeline. Talk a little bit about the uh, not-so-positive pipeline that you're trying to disrupt by closing these these prisons, these mm-hmm. youth prisons. Yeah, so when Virginia began to truly undergo a transformation of its juvenile justice system, it was because a national survey had taken a look at all of the juvenile justice systems across the nation, and Virginia was in the top five worst. Our claim to fame was that we were number one in referring young people from school to law enforcement. Hold on. Let's let's pause on that. Let's just make sure everybody hears that statistic. Mm -hmm. Um, Say it for the people one more time. Virginia was number one in the nation in 2015 for referring young people from school to law enforcement. That was our claim to fame. Wow. And so, and then when we began to look at the juvenile justice system as a whole, you look at where they're putting young people that end up in the worst trouble, they looked like adult prisons. And so, if you're incarcerating and institutionalizing young minds, Mm -hmm. what are you really teaching them? You're certainly not rehabilitating them, you're preparing them for their trip into the DOC. Mm. And we recognize that cannot be. And if it's from school that you are referring them, there's a direct pipeline, not just from school into juvenile prison, but from juvenile prison into adult prison. And we are determined and making strong headway in disrupting them both. Wow. Have you all been able to look a little bit into where in Virginia the children are being referred to the most. Mm-hmm. So when we look at who ends up in the JCCs, that's the juvenile prison. Mm-hmm. Five top committing communities or areas. Mm-hmm. Hampton Roads is number one. They have three communities that commit forty percent of all of the young people that ended up in JCC. I'm sorry, forty percent comes out of Hampton Roads. Forty percent comes out of that little strip of land by the water. Is that not? I don't even know what to do with that. of the children that are incarcerated come out of Hampton Roads, Valerie? 
40%. They come from Norfolk, Newport News, and Hampton. Yeah. That's outrageous, right? That just paints a picture of black children locked up, locked down. Exactly. When, when you when you say those regions, I know exactly what they look like. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And then there's um, Richmond and Manassas. Yeah. So. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So stark and startling. It right? is, which is why what you all are doing is so important. I really appreciate and I'm I'm I love that hearing that you guys don't just shut it down, but you help to grow it. That's exactly right. Right. So stop doing what's wrong and do what's right. Right. And don't do something that's close to right. Do what's right. Mm. We keep fighting when what you are doing mm-hmm. is still not on the right track, not really. Mm-hmm. Just because you shut down something large, if you build something that's a little bit smaller and it's in the wrong place, it's still wrong. Hello. Tell them. That's why you just say close them down. That's exactly right. Stop. Wow. Stop doing what doesn't work. So speaking of doing what doesn't work, this episode we're really talking about believing black women. And right now we're realizing that our belief system is just not what's working. Mm. We're not valuing black women's voices. Can you talk a little bit about how you see that with your juvenile girls, your black girls that are you're really fighting for in the system? Absolutely. So I'm going to start by telling a story. A young black woman shared with me, you know, I was in school and I took a seat and I sat in a place that's different from where I would normally sit in my classroom. And in walks this little white boy and he walks up to me and said, get out of my seat, nigger. I sat back in my seat because I, I, I didn't even know how to process that. Right. I said, wait, what? Right, right. And she said, well, you know, I, I exercised restraint and I got up and I went to the principal's office and I explained to the principal what happened. And the principal said to me, what did you do to make that happen? How old is this little girl? She's 16. 16. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about believing black girls, black women, that's such a deep, deep concept. It goes beyond uh, just valuing the words that come out of my mouth and believing that they are the truth. Right. It goes deeper into valuing me as a human being and recognizing that my space, my place, it belongs to me and it's valuable. And you don't have the right to infringe upon it, to push back on it, and nor do you have the right to question my right to be. So believing black girls, it's disbelieving in the value of a black girl that would cause someone to yank a black girl out of a seat. It's disbelieving black girls that would criminalize black girls and what they wear and allowing others to wear that same thing. And somehow it's hypersexualized and inappropriate when it's on a black girl's body. It's not believing a black girl and not believing in her value that allows the systems to constantly portray black girls as the less than. I'm going to share just one last story. You got to take your time. Mm. My daughter, my own baby. We're, 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 we're not from here. We're from Seattle, so we're transplants. We had been here less than a month, and my daughter, she posted a picture of herself on Facebook. And some little boy posted back and said, oh, my goodness, you're a beautiful princess. And a little white girl said, don't be stupid. Only white girls are princesses. So when we talk about believing black girls, I want to change it up just a little bit and start saying believing in Mm. black girls. 
Yes. You've got to believe in their beauty, believe in their worth, believe in their right to speak their own truth, and don't challenge that right. You can challenge someone's truth if you, if you in some way can show that it, it's flawed, but you don't challenge my right to stand in my truth. You don't get to do that. Thank you. Thank you for changing my narrative on that. Mm. Let's believe in Black girls. Let's believe in Black women. Now, from mother to mother, mm-hmm. how did you handle your your girl, your little girl reading something like that? What do you say to your daughter? I mean, that's another piece of just humanity that we don't see is the conversations that black mothers have to have with our black daughters. Mine just turned five mm. um, about a month ago. What can you would you mind sharing a little bit of how you handled that just as a parent? The first thing I did was I apologized to her for the stupidity of someone else, Mm. for someone else not recognizing that their small view of the world can never hold or define her. I apologized for that. But then I told her, but you don't internalize that smallness Mm. because you are great. You are beautiful. I call my, I have two daughters and I call them beautiful and precious. And Folks genuinely thought that their names were beautiful and (laughs) precious because they hear it so often. But I am determined to feed them truth in such large doses that they don't have room in their hearts or in their minds for the lies of the outside. And so my, my take on it is if I continue to provide a space for you that is so full of love and that is so full of support and truth about who you really are, You'll never lay down for a lie. Yes, mama. Yes. (laughs) I appreciate that. No, that was, and just to have that type of strength, right? It shows that somebody believed in you and spoke that into you. And that's why we have to keep saying this over and over to our black girls. Say it on a microphone in case there's a black girl that's not hearing it at home. You're beautiful, girl. Mm. You are beautiful. You are powerful. There is a power and a strength inside of you that allows you to be resilient in ways that will blow even your own mind. So when it feels heavy and when you feel like you don't know what you're going to do, reach inside yourself, find your own strength, remind yourself of how beautiful and powerful you are and stand up and do it again. Yes, Valerie. Yes. Oh, man. So I just really wanted to sit in that for a second because that that feeling, this moment, this energy that we get when you speak that truth into a room is so powerful. You know, Black Girl Magic wasn't mm. just a hashtag, mm-hmm. right? It's a real thing. <laughs> it's a real thing. Oh, man. So we really wanted to also touch on the idea, the subject of restorative justice in the context of your world and your and your mind that comes up. And especially lately, I'm hearing more and more different tactics of how we're using it with young people. Can you talk a little bit about your view of restorative justice from your understanding and generally, and then maybe a little bit more specifically towards Rise to Youth? So restorative justice, in general, they're talking about the concept talks about allowing someone who who has caused a harm to face the one they have harmed and the two of them to be able to come together with the community that has been impacted by that harm and and come to a place where, you know what, we can heal and we can find a way forward. For me, that in Rise for Youth, that looks like the systems that have oppressed our children finding their way 
to allow those young people to come into those spaces and talk about the harms that have been done against them. Have, have there been young people who have done some things that they shouldn't? Absolutely. And so have some of those things been really heinous, if you will? Absolutely. But we're not talking about the years of systemic trauma that have been forced upon entire communities. We're not talking about the years, the, the decades of economic and social and racial trauma that have been inflicted. So if we can start there, Mm. and let the res restoration begin there, mm. then restorative justice is going to look like you pouring resources into communities. <laughs> restorative justice is going to look like education systems are going to be equitable. They're yep. going to look as good in Short Pump as they do in Richmond City. And, and you see how I said that, right? Right. I said um, as good in Short Pump because what, what it looks like in Richmond City, it should look even better because there have been so many years where has, there has been such a, an inequity mm -hmm. and such a disparity mm -hmm. that it needs to be state of the art and looking better than anything that this state has to offer. Now, Valerie, that does not sound equal. <laughs> I'm not looking for equal. I'm looking for equity. There They're go. different. <laughs> equity, equity means that you bring me up so that I can have a chance at understanding what the playing field is. Because right now in Richmond Public Schools, I, I dare you. Go sit in a Richmond Public School classroom and then you go high school classroom and then go to Deep Run. Ooh, ooh. Because they are so drastically different, equity means there's going to be some serious work done in Richmond City. And so for me, again, restorative justice means you're going to go and you're going to restore those schools. You're going to restore those communities. You are going to pour in resources and allow opportunity to flood Richmond City and other neighborhoods that have been disenfranchised. Then... We can start talking about, okay, now, how do we heal some of the hurts that have been caused by folks coming out of these communities? Heal the community first. Beautiful, beautiful. Anything with that equity talk and, and healing about we should be focusing specifically on black girls and the community around restorative justice? Absolutely. We need to understand that black girls, their bodies, their minds, and their souls are beautiful they need to be valued and elevated in many ways. Uh, when we come to, when we, when we look at fashion mm. and we, whatever the trend is, if a white child can wear it, a black child should be able to wear it without issue. Right. Uh, the same shirt, if you're going to allow it on one body, you're going to allow it on every body. Right. right. The end. And so when we talk restorative justice, it means that you allow my mind to be free and I can speak my mind. You allow my body to be free and how I express myself on my body, you allow that to be. And and I recognize, okay, there, there's got to be a dress code. You just make sure whatever that code is, that it isn't affecting a black body in any way different than any other body. Beautiful, beautiful. And any other way that black girls should maybe have better, shinier, more than any other, in any other way, subject, just like the shiny school at Art Richmond? Mm. I tell you what, right now I'm really talking a lot about black women elected officials. Ah, yes. And and having that representation there and being really unapologetic about having black women of color or women of color running. 
That's exactly right. That's... We need black women I didn't in mean positions to... of power. No, you didn't. <laughs> you didn't. It's just that, you know, when I start thinking about the young ladies that I work with, I'm thinking of their schools and I want them I want them to fit in their schools. Right. I want them to have the opportunity to learn so that they can step into those positions of power. You're absolutely right. There you go. Um, and I don't have to change the way I talk. I don't have to change the way I express myself Come on. to fit within the world that you, how you have framed it. Come on. I read something today that said, perhaps the old slave owners weren't the best to, to set up a system of government. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Whoever wrote that was probably on a great check, right? I thought that yeah. was brilliant. And right. so I right. think to myself, how about we allow black women to step into those positions of power because we have been walking in our power for as long as we have been alive. Right. You know, when you look at slavery and all that that did to a black family and how, I mean, intentionally black men were stripped away and in front of black women, they would be beaten to death. The strongest black man would be beaten to death. So that would teach black women to teach their black young men, you've got to be quiet and you've got to be meek. Otherwise, this could potentially be you. And it put them in a position of head of house and power to the black woman that can step up and endure such a thing. Right. Or to have the man stripped away and or to have the the, the slave master coming in in the middle of the night and making babies with you. Right. I mean, oh, I mean, it just never stops. It never stops. It never stops. And if we want to talk about play Place and space right here in Richmond. We were number one in the downriver trade. Talk about uh -huh. separating families. Mm -hmm. And black girls are now the number one rising group of incarcerated children. Oof. Black girls. It doesn't stop. It doesn't stop. We got to stop it. We will stop it. We'll stop it. We will. Powerful black lives. That was powerful. That was powerful, Valerie. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me here today. Well, we're not done with you yet. Mm. We're mm. not done with you yet. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to Race Capital on WRIRLP 97.3 FM, Richmond Independent Radio. So we're going to move on to our next segment, which is What's Your Privilege? where we ask our guests to identify their privilege and what they're doing to use that privilege towards a more progressive society. So Valerie, tell us a little bit about what's your privilege? Well, I'm an attorney and I recognize that as an attorney, I have a deep understanding of the law and I am able to use that, especially with the young people that I work with, to help them to understand if they are facing charges, you know, what how to engage the justice system in a way that it will truly treat them fairly. Mm -hmm. I can't tell you how many times I have watched, um, just as observing in a courtroom, watched young ones go before um, a tribunal and basically be forced into taking a plea, mm -hmm. not because they've done something and this is just the best way to handle the situation, but because they don't know their rights, wow. because they don't know that for eight, for every crime someone is accused of committing, there are elements. And if the Commonwealth fails to prove any one element, then the whole thing has got to go away. That is the way our system of justice has been set up. Mm -hmm. But unless you know this, Unless you have someone advocating for you to have the justice system work justly for you, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you're willing to accept whatever you're, whatever you're handed, right. even if it's to your own detriment. Right. So your privilege is knowing your rights, knowing our rights, 
Absolutely. Knowing our rights and then being able to use them to help others. Right. So you also have that education. You have a, a whole JD. You've got the letters behind your name. You've got it on the card. <laughs> you know, when they when you come in and they try and discount you based on what you may look like, you can put that card down and say, this gives me a little bit extra on what I like to call a white people's resume. Right. We have our credentials and what we do. But every now and then we have to drop in something to update our white people resume. Right. You know, it's, it's one of those things of... We have to bring it out in certain rooms, unfortunately. Um, but and that's part of that privilege is that we have something to put on that resume that appeals to white people. That's exactly right. Yeah. So would you mind talking a little bit about how you became a lawyer? Like what was some of the privilege or some of the, the steps that supported you to get to a space where you now have a law degree and you're now able to use that privilege to disrupt these systems? So mine is an interesting story. I found myself in a, an incredibly um, abusive relationship. I was in a very abusive marriage. And when I realized that I needed to get out, I had to get out because I was raising two little girls and I had to show them what it meant to first love myself. Mm. And then I could love others, namely my daughters. And so when I made that decision and I stepped away, I also realized that as far back as I could remember, I always worked with younger ones than myself, mm -hmm. kind of as a, a big sister or a great friend or, you know, a sounding board and even a youth pastor. Mm -hmm. And I realized that I was going to continue that work, that I was called to that. And as my daughters faced the different challenges that they went through and their friends faced different challenges, they would all, always want to come and have a conversation with me. And so I thought to myself, I'd better make sure that I have a job that allows me to do this thing that I love. Mm -hmm. And I, at, at first I thought I was going to be a juvenile um, psychologist or a, a psychiatrist. That was my first thought, okay. you know, because I loved listening and, and helping folks walk, work through different things. And, um, but as I travel down that road, I realized sociology is really the way to go if you're going to go that route, okay. because you've got to look at individuals in their environment, because no one is an island. Right. You are a product of all of the folks and environments that impact you. 100%. And then I realized, huh, if I really want to make changes in all of this crazy that I'm learning, i better do it through the law. Hmm. And so I just continued down that that journey of discovery of number one, who I am, and number two, how I am going to take all that is me and pour it out in a way that is going to do the greatest good for me and mine. And when I say me and mine, I mean every little black girl out there. Ah. <laughs> so even in a place that now people can identify as your privilege, and you even point out in your privilege, you overcame so many hardships. I mean, just being a mother during this, going through a divorce, starting a new life, knowing yourself. Yeah. You had to work through so much just to get to this place where people can say, well, that's that's your privilege. Right. To do that. That's exactly right. And, you know, and I, I don't tell my full story often, but I am so many of the statistics that people say mm. will never make it. I was that teenage mom. I was that single mom. I was that welfare mom mm. for a minute. I was that, you know, barely hanging on by a thread, almost evicted mom. Okay. okay. And all of those things, while they worked against me, they also worked for me because they made me realize my strength. Oh. They made me show my daughters, set your face like flint, be steadfast and unmovable, and there's nothing you can't overcome. And so now here I am on the other side of that journey and still doing that thing that I love, 
working with young people, helping them recognize and see their power and strength. That's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing your story. I, I That was actually a question that she was not prepared for. We were just in the moment. So I appreciate you giving that extra bit of you. Um, and as a mother, as a divorced mother that did the whole finding myself as well, I, I want to really just say I see you and I thank you. I'm proud of you, another black woman, and seeing what you're doing and hearing that in certain stages we can still make a choice. Right to love ourselves enough to get there. That's right. And so many women are making hard choices in this day and time to speak their truth, to be listened to, to be believed in. And it's really amazing to see women like you that have stepped out and been successful and now giving back, right? Creating the past to give back. So thank you. Thanks, Chelsea. Thank you so much for sharing that, Valerie. So just a little bit about... What I want to share today about my privilege, we've talked so much about the school system, and I had the privilege of going to school in Chesterfield County, where my siblings went to school mostly in Richmond, my half-siblings that lived in Richmond City. And my mother did this very intentionally because she worked in Richmond Public Schools. So I got to see the inside of Richmond Public Schools. I saw the mold. I smelled the old mop. I saw the lunches. I could feel, I mean, every sense of me, I could understand the difference of that. I had friends there at my mom's school, ESH Green Elementary School is where my mom taught for 18 years. But I had the privilege of being able to go back to Chesterfield County and receive that education, put it on my resume, and that was a stigma that I didn't have to ride to say, oh, you came from Richmond Public Schools. I recognize that totally, especially more today as I advocate for all of Richmond. Richmond Public Schools is a really sacred spot to me why I might not be so dedicated to education as far as advocacy because many of the people in power in Richmond Public Schools, many of the people that made the decisions that put us there today are the people that have befriended my mother, that grew up, that came to my birthday parties. That was my mom's village, is that Richmond Public School system. So the privilege I got to see of, of knowing all the top heads of Richmond Public Schools, but not having to deal with the school system itself. The privilege of having to go to a different school system and hearing the teachers talk about the problems that they're having in their schools, but my teachers didn't have that. So I have the privilege of having the lens of both in a way so that I can be a real honest truth to say, no, hey, you in Chesterfield, you had it really good. You have no idea. And hey, Richmond, you can be just as good at these Richmond kids. In fact, what you're learning here, getting through this and surviving this, you're ahead of these Richmond kids, of these Chesterfield kids. Somebody needs to speak that to the kids because right now all they're hearing is how terrible their schools are because we have to advocate for that too. So it's this duality and why it's so important that you all and Rise for Youth are doing the programs that you are because you aren't just advocating something that I know you haven't touched on uh, here, but maybe you can talk about that in just a second, is the actual programs that you all do with the young people, right? You're not just behind the scenes closing them down and then working with the providers to get it going. I know you all have very direct contact with the youth. So as we kind of close out the privilege, why don't we talk about the privilege that you have of working with the youth? 
Oh, I would absolutely love to. Yes, Rise for Youth. We have a youth-led arm that's Youth for Rise. And those are a group of young people that have either been impacted by the system or who are passionate about changing the system. We meet the first three Saturdays of every month and we come together and we talk about what are the social ills right now? How is the juvenile justice system impacting young lives? And what moves can we make either legislatively? Are we going to be going and lobbying, talking to legislators? Or are we going to go out into communities and raise awareness so that communities can take part in ways that will raise uh, the, the, the level of love and compassion and uh, resource in their own communities. And it's an amazing thing to see the light come on in young minds and for them to learn their own space in advocacy and really rock that thing. To watch young ones go and talk to legislators, legislators who sometimes are obstinate, I mean, <laughs> or, who are downright rude. Right to young people. Yep. And they're able to stand and hold their own, speak their <laughs> truth, and demand change. It's a powerful, powerful thing. And so um, with everything that's going on in our governor's mansion right now, our young people, we sat down, we read every article, we watched every video, and, and had the tough conversation, what should we do about it? Mm-hmm. And our young people wrote a letter to the governor. We are in the process also of planning four forums that are going to take place across the Commonwealth, one in Central Virginia, one in Northern, one in Southwest, and one in the Hampton Roads region. And the first of those four forums is happening tonight here in Central Virginia at the main public library at 101 East Franklin, downstairs in the auditorium from 5.30 to 7.30 p.m. Okay, so wait, so tonight it's happening, 5.30 to 7.30. That's exactly right. We're going to have this powerful panel of folks talking about what, does racism look like? Mm-hmm. How has it impacted our system of government here in Virginia? And what are we going to do to dismantle racist structures and build a new equitable Virginia for us all? All from our youth leaders. That's oh, yeah. what we get to hear from. People can come to the library and hear from youth. There's going to be a powerful panel. There is going to be a youth on that panel. Yes. There's going to be a youth who's actually moderating with one of our other, uh, with one of the other folks in our group. But yeah, Great. the young people are running the show. They've Great. planned the show. They're going to run the show. There's going to be a youth on the panel and there's going to be a youth moderator. But we need to hear from every segment of society. And we need all of Central Virginia to come out tonight. Come and be a part of this conversation. Don't sit back and say, I'm sick and I'm frustrated with it. Mm. Come out and do something about it. Mm. Be a part of the change you want to see. Do you have the dates for the next three after tonight? We don't have those dates yet because we are working with our Youth for Rise members in the other uh, parts of the regions of Virginia. So we will keep you posted and get those dates out as soon as we've got them. Great. If people are interested in finding those dates, how can they follow you all and how can they hear more about that? Please follow us on Facebook at Rise for Youth. Uh, Follow us on Twitter at Rise for Youth and on um, Instagram. And please go to our website, sign up and get our updates, uh, riseforyouth.org. Follow us, sign up. Great, great. So you guys have some pretty exciting things coming up. We do indeed. And I mean, just one last thing. We've got time. Yeah, we have um, I, I also want to lift up, we are currently working with the Hampton Roads communities. Uh, Department of Juvenile Justice is attempting to build another 60-bed facility in the Isle of Wight community. Wow. And if you don't know anything about Isle of Wight, it's farmland out yep. in the middle of nowhere. I would say right on 460. Uh-huh. Yep. Way far away from the communities where kids are coming from. And we're working with the Hampton Roads in Newport News communities to uh, locate some space where something uh, that is more community-based and that will truly be 
reflective. The folks working there will be reflective of the young people inside the facility and, you know, just making sure that they can support their own. Wow. Wow. Well, thank you for keeping us updated, for reminding us that this battle is still happening. That's right. Right? That's right. Any other words? Anything else you want to put out there, Ms. Valerie? I just want you all to remember that young people, they really are our future. And unless we take the time to invest in them, and invest in them not what we think they need, but listen to them first. Let them share what their hopes and their dreams are. And then we ought to do the hard work of helping them realize them. So, yeah, if we do that, we will have a rich future. Thank you so much, Valerie Slater. Thanks for joining us, and hopefully you'll come back and see us. Absolutely. Thank you for having me, Chelsea. It's been my pleasure. So Valerie just kind of blew my mind. I knew what she was doing, super powerful in the community, and I met a lot of the kids that she works with. But it's always so powerful to hear their stories right from their mouths, to hear this power come from the woman. I'm still really focused on their mission that she shared with us and how this isn't just about deconstructing, it's about reinvesting in areas. I think that's really valuable and I think that's something that we definitely need to see more of in Richmond and everywhere. Right. It's like an actual demonstration of equity, the redistribution of resources. Mm -hmm. We can see from one place to the other and we understand the direct benefit of why we should put resources in one place rather than another. This conversation about equity is something that I think we should be having over and over and over again. And you both talked about this isn't equality, it's equity. And that's why we can't just say, oh, well, everybody has the same thing. We can't just say this law will work for everyone. An equitable lens means understanding where certain folks are starting from because of oppressive stances and because of oppressive policies. Therefore, understanding what resources have to be in place, what holistic ideas and pathways have to be pipelined in order for certain folks to have an accessible way to be successful. And that sounds like a lot of accommodations, modifications, but it's actually not. A lot of times, exactly what Valerie was saying, that they understand what needs to happen. People are already doing the work. They just need the pass to the money. I mean, that's where a lot of people want to use equity and, and skate around what equity really is. But equity is about money. Yeah. And it's a question <laughs> of where do you get those funds? Right. And many folks don't have to ask that question as hard as especially black communities and black people providers. So that question of where the money comes from keeps people up at night. It keeps organizations from having a strategic plan for five years because they have no idea where the money is going to come from after the $10,000 that they just worked hours and hours from for that. But what Rise for Youth is really doing is pretty powerful because it. I can understand that youth-centered, it's supporting our education from the school-to-prison pipeline. It's shining a light on our criminal justice system. It's the model of policy and the way that they lobby in General Assembly and understand what's happening with our legislator. And that's led by a Black woman. It shows that folks out here are doing this and can do this. Imagine if we had more programs like that. Thinking about Black women in leadership positions, when she was talking about her story and how she had to overcome so much to get to where she is now, you said something to her about somebody believed in her. Somebody had faith in her. I'm thinking about believing in Black girls, and you're a mom, and your daughter is a Black girl. What was that conversation like for you as a mom? What was it like hearing that and having that conversation? What were you thinking about? I have been hearing stories from mothers since undergrad when I was interning. Where did you intern? 
So I went to Longwood undergrad, and so I was actually in Farmville, the CSB, the Community Services Board out there, and doing mental health case management. And I would go out to the homes, very rural homes. Some people didn't even have running water. That was 2004 or five in Prince Edward. And all of these are black families. And that wasn't uncommon. It shook me. It totally blew my mind as a 20-year-old from Chesterfield County. But Farmville, Prince George, Buckingham, those are totally different places. People live very differently. So the ideas of seeing mothers and seeing them raise black girls I've seen it in in many different places, but cat for real. And so being a mother, it's hard to really conceptualize how important it is to speak that into these young girls. Hearing Valerie talk about her personal story really takes me back to how intentional I am with my language with my daughter from a very young age, especially because her father and I split when she was one. And I know how I felt just hearing certain narratives of the world of how I was looked at as a mother who was making the decision to split up her family and how I what I was hearing. And I was like, man, if they're saying this to me, if I'm educated and I'm, I'm doing well and I'm confident, what if my daughter hears them talk to me like this? What did you do? A lot of it was fake it till you make it. Set your face like Flint. (laughs) Set your face like Flint. Yeah. But then I realized my daughter believed in me. Like even from a one years old, when I had my face right, she she bought on into it. And she spoke that into me just in saying, Mommy, I love you. Mommy, miss you. Good job, Mommy. I could also see how she was listening to me and how I built her up. She would say that right to me. Good job, mommy. You're doing a good job with my smoothie. (laughs) So just letting her know that and loving on her curls, loving on her smile, loving on her skin. I don't know what I'm going to do when she comes home and she asks certain questions. We haven't had that moment. She'll be starting kindergarten in in the fall. Holy crap. I can't believe my my little girl just turned five. So when Valerie said that my mama bear radar went up, I saw all red. <laughs> but I know that's that's what's to come, right? So we got to arm her. I can't imagine what a terrible feeling that is. You always talk about how happy and bright-eyed she is. I don't have kids. I'm not a mom. But I would imagine that's one of the worst things that you can feel is the knowledge that something like some kid saying something on Facebook, like what that kid said to Valerie's daughter... Right. Knowing that will happen. Not even thinking if or probably or chances are. I know 100% someone's going to call her a nigger. Someone's going to call her a monkey. Whether it's to her face or not, it's not even a doubt. It's just how do I prepare her? How do I prepare a five-year-old for that? As a grown-up, we talk about it and we talk about race and systematic oppression and laws and redlining. But how do you describe that? to a five-year-old. Well, the way I do that is I talk about race very openly. We talk about black dolls. We talk about curly hair. We talk about people not liking each other because of their skin color and that not being fair, that not being right. And we have civil rights books and books with young black women. And we watch videos and YouTube videos of the Ruby Bridges and Barbara Johns. And she sees this, right? Naomi Wadler, who spoke at the March of Our Lives, in 2018, was 11 years old and a young black girl. And I I love showing that video to Chloe because the girl says, if there's a book that you want to read and it hasn't been written yet, then it's your job to write it. Yes. You're the one to write it. And 
So, like, Chloe thinks about, like, I could write a book. I mean, right? Because at this point, her books are sure and pretty easy. But she's like, I could do that. Like, yeah, absolutely. And it's those things that I'm excited about teaching her that she can do. You could have a radio show. (laughs) Why not? Right? You could write a book. I didn't hear those things because it was more like you got to go to school. You got to get a degree. You got to work for someone else. You got to have a pension. You got to. But now, yeah, I'm not going to be able to protect her from everything, but I can sew different things into her to arm her so that when someone calls her a ridiculous name in the workplace, she'll be confident enough to start her own and not have to work for anyone else. And to give back an equitable lens and pathway, just like Valerie is doing in her kids for Rise for Youth, right? As a lawyer, she's she's giving back to that. And whatever gifts I can give Chloe and whatever privilege I will set up for her because I want to as a mom, right? Sure. I, I try not to bash anybody for schools or that's such a hard conversation here in Richmond about where to go to school way to put your kid, but we're all out here just trying to make the best decision for our kids. And I see how sensitive and personal that is. But whatever we can do to build these black boys and girls up, especially our black girls. So it's it's really important that we hear from mamas like Valerie, from bosses like Valerie. I mean, we were talking about this platform with Valerie and, and what WRIR could do to the voices that she works with. And she got excited that right there, she started thinking about new programming ideas. That's the innovative mind of black women, just to be creative and start something new. It's not just like our hair can't be limited. Like our stuff flies. Our minds can fly. So it's... It's pretty dope, man. After you get all over the super oppressive, criminalizing lifestyle that the entire society has set up for you and see that your ancestors have overcome that because they knew that we were coming. We knew that we could thrive and have just a bit more of a chance of liberation, but still have all the joy, right? Once we get past all that, we're good. We've always been good. Well, okay. I'm going to wipe my tears, blow my nose, and ah, that was a pretty awesome episode. It was beautiful. Man, lifting up stories of survivors, talking to boss ladies in Richmond, speaking life into my daughter, mama tears. Chelsea, that was a really powerful episode. Yeah, it was. So much good energy. Yeah, man. I feel released, re-energized. Ready to go. I feel inspired. Yeah, man. Black women will do that to you. Okay, so some things to take away from this episode. First off, just understanding that there are black women in the city leading these movements and really demonstrating equity. Yeah. Right? Like Rise for Youth is a program that is doing some great things, but what about the youth that they don't touch? Right. We need to expand that and keep going. Yeah, that was one thing that I was thinking about um, when she was talking about how her privilege is being able to help youth understand their rights and navigate the system. And I was thinking about how many young people there are who don't have a Valerie. Mm, right, right. So that means we just had to grow more. Right. More equity, more programs, exactly. more more black women in leadership positions Yep, doing this work. Right. And then that means changing the narrative of exactly what she told us from believing black girls to believing in absolutely gosh that was that's something i will never forget the room (laughs) we had chills (laughs) no that she just completely changed my entire wording my thought process i'm actually hype about spreading that and telling people because i know people will get excited that and completely understand why it's important to keep evolving that language Words are so important. I I think that we constantly have to strive to value our language. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And 
teaching people that we should continue that. We're never going to be satisfied. The words might not ever just be, okay, this is what it is. Our political correctness or whatever, our diplomacy will always continue to move forward. And I think as long as people are open to that, they won't be so stuck or feel frustrated when we encourage you to, hey, switch up your narrative. Yeah. Humanity changes. Language (laughs) has to change with it. Yep. Yep. And so and the final thing is just to listen to black women as they tell their stories, right? We need to continue to talk about why it's important to believe black women, especially when they're putting their vulnerability out there and telling their truth and have this conversation like on repeat over and over and over. Yep. Yep. Well, good thing we're coming at them weekly. We get to bring this to you guys weekly. We're so excited to continue this going. Thanks for joining us today on Race Capital. And this is Chelsea Higgs-Wise. And this is Kat Maudlin Jackson. We'll catch you next week, Wednesday, right here at 10 a.m. on WRIR. I'm from the R.